Today's episode is all about customer experience, psychology, and fandom. From Engagement, I'm David Millay, and this is Flip the Switch. Quick plug before we get to our guest introduction today. If you're focused on guest experience or employee experience, definitely go check out our email newsletter. As we work with pro teams and college athletic departments around the country, we're taking the lessons that we learn from our experiments and our projects, and we're putting those insights into the newsletter. A couple of times per week, you'll get everything from the articles and content that are inspiring us to innovate, as well as new tools that we're using and loving. If you get value from this show, you're going to love the newsletter. To sign up, head to engagementpartners.com backslash newsletter. What's going on, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of Flip the Switch, where we sit down with leaders in customer experience and employee experience, and we try to figure out what are the trends that they're paying attention to? What are the experiments that they're running? What are the insights that have driven success in their career And we try to take all those things and we apply those principles, those frameworks to the world of sports and entertainment. Right now, we're in the middle of a a long run on college leaders and highlighting different innovative thinkers in the business. But we're going to interrupt that run to bring you an episode with my friend Peter Sorkoff, the founder of Seer. Now, if you go to their website, seer.world, S-E-E-R dot world, they actually have a great bio of Peter, and they're, it's really clear and concise, so I'm just going to go ahead and cheat, and I'm going to read that bio out, and then we'll talk a little bit more about what we get into in the episode. But just to establish some credibility for Peter, here we go. Peter epitomizes big picture thinking. He brings his 20 plus years of marketing and branding experience to the table in every interaction, leveraging his deep understanding of the human subconscious and the phenomenon he calls fandom. Peter's career began in a therapeutic environment, which has informed his human-centric vision of marketing from the outset. That insight has served him well in his roles for major brands in the NBA, the MLB, NHL, and other sports franchises around the world. Prior to the launch of Seer, Peter was the chief creative officer and EVP of brand for the Atlanta Hawks and Phillips Arena. At the Hawks, he managed the brand, marketing, digital, creative, production, content, innovation, and retail teams. Peter built an internal agency, which changed the paradigm of sports partnerships with Coca-Cola, Anheuser-Busch, Diago, Verizon, and FanDuel. Peter also led the repositioning and rebranding of the Hawks franchise, and he served as the design lead on the $200 million experience-first renovation of Phillips Arena, where groundbreaking architecture fulfilled the needs of a millennial audience. His leadership created the $40 million Emory Courts Practice Facility, the USA's first cohabited professional sports practice facility, human sports science lab, and sports medicine and orthopedic practice. Peter also enabled Coca-Cola to integrate their global innovation platform, Bridge Community, into the broader Hawks franchise, another first in sports. Internationally, Peter has been a consultant on projects for the Olympics and in the Australian sports marketplace. He's a much sought after marketing speaker on the national stage where audiences learn about how to market to the subconscious and how every brand should think of their customers as fans. All right, so that's Peter's bio. I cheated. Hopefully uh, it it read fast enough for you guys. Uh, But I've worked with Peter before on some different presentations and 
we've tried uh, pitching on, on a few clients together. Nothing has panned out just yet. Uh, but every time I talk to Peter, it is a fascinating conversation where I learn a lot and we jam on all kinds of different ideas. And I rarely have to explain different weird fringe concepts that I'm exploring because he's like already been there and probably talked to those guys that are running that project. Uh, so he's super smart and you're going to see that come across in this episode. And a lot of the work that they're doing with bigger airports or retail facilities uh, is really, really insightful because again, going back to this last part, Peter and his team at Seer are tapping into the subconscious of customers and fans, and they're trying to build experiences based around how that subconscious of that customer works in that environment. And when we think about that as it relates to sports and entertainment, it's really important because oftentimes I think we we get into the habit of just rolling out the product on the field or rolling out our product, whatever it might be. And we think that because it's got great features, because it's exciting, that is enough. And the reality is it's not. If we're not constantly building experiences based on the true emotions, stereotypes, goals, and motivations of our fans, the interests of our fans, we're going to fail because somebody else is going to do that. And that's going to create a deeper emotional connection than the purely rational connection that we're rolling out based on the merits of our product. So we're going to get really deep into that conversation here with Peter. I don't want to steal any more thunder. uh, So let's jump into it. Without further ado, let's get into this episode with my friend, Peter Sorkoff. Peter, welcome to the show. Well, thank you very much for having me. I know we've tried to make this happen a few times, so. I am I am super excited because some of my favorite episodes that we ever record are not about some of the core things that we usually work on, which might be like operational processes behind the scenes. Ultimately, my favorite episodes end up being on the psychology of fandom that we do. And, and that's where we're going to spend a lot of time with you. So I'm super, super excited for this episode. Yeah, well, I um, will hopefully have no shortage of things to talk about on that front. So excellent. All right, let's get it going. So you started your career in therapeutic behaviors, but one of your biggest roles in sports and entertainment was really being the chief creative officer and the EVP of brand for the Atlanta Hawks. And and you've described transforming that organization from from being a brand that was you know, chasing what everybody else was doing, which we see in sports all the time where everybody's just looking at the other big guys and saying, how can we make a version of that? Or how can we rip that off and duplicate that? Um, but really you guys wanted to be the brand that everybody else copied. So how did you inspire that culture, that team to kind of get out of the thinking of let's do what everybody else is doing? How did you start to become the leaders of the pack as opposed to the followers? Well, I think um, it was really born out of necessity to start. Um, our, our business was flagging, to be totally honest with you. So this was not a we're doing great and we want to do better. Um, we uh, went through a really rough stretch of nine seasons, no playoffs. Um, you know, season ticket base had had devolved to uh, an embarrassingly low number. And uh, I think internally we had really sort of you know, created this, um, this belief that if we could just start winning again, then, you know, the business would sort of rise up around our, our winning schedule. And, uh, two years into winning, none of that was happening. And, um, we had a a really great ownership at that team who, uh, empowered a few of us at a senior level to really kind of get out of the box and try to understand, you know, why was, 
you know, the business, frankly, not catching up to what the product on the floor was doing. And, you know, we'd sort of gotten past that point where you could explain it as lag. And um, so I really sort of put forth this notion that, you know, I think we have a really systemic brand issue and that I think our brand is really undefined. And as you said earlier, we've spent so much time just looking around at everybody next to us for best practices that, you know, we tried all those best practices and, and it still wasn't really improving the business in a significant kind of way. So getting outside of the box uh, really became sort of the, the mantra or the calling card to like, we've got to transform this business in a different way. Um, and I think uh, that became a bit of a rallying cry for a small group. Uh, you know, what I can tell you in retrospect, looking back is you'd like to think that an entire organization rallies around that. What I know about human instinct is that's not actually how it works, right? There's always sort of a small group that wants to change the order of things. And then there's a larger group who does not want the order to change, even though if it changed, it would be better for everybody. So um, change management transformation is, is a really lonely game. Um, but uh, we were empowered, like I said, by ownership. And uh, so we sort of outlined a strategy that was very unique uh, at that time in sports. And uh, it called into question our entire audience, which wasn't really being done at that time either. Uh, I'll just call it square. We were really chasing 52-year-old white males, largely because the belief was that, you know, they held the keys to the T&E budget for large corporations. And, um, you know, that was a narrowing audience that was really kind of antiquated in terms of, you know, how you might position and orientate an entire um, franchise or, or at that time, uh, an enterprise around. Um, so when we stepped back and really started to look at, well, what markets are underserved in Atlanta in particular, at that time, no one was throwing around the term millennials a lot. Um, but we started to do some research um, around millennials and, you know, at that time, people were really thinking millennials didn't have enough money to be a significant audience, meaning generationally they hadn't matured into, you know, positions in business and just personal finance to be able to sort of afford the NBA. Um, what was really interesting was the research kind of came back with the exact opposite, which was that at that time, um, you know, this this millennial was making on average 70K a year, had been promoted twice, was a manager and a, you know, decent sized uh, organization, but more importantly, not married, no mortgage, no car payment. Um, and because they were not married, um, no children, they had very little distress on their decision making around, you know, their discretionary income. So they were actually also spending a lot on experience and not as much on stuff. And that became really sort of interesting too. So I'll tell you that, um, I'm not a math guy, um, but I really sort of embraced data because what I knew we needed inside of our organization was enough data that it was essentially undisputable what we needed to do, right? The math story, you may not like it, but the math story made sense to reinforce this new strategic um, direction that we were going to move into. So once we sort of understood that that was the audience that we were really going to put at the center of our target, not that we weren't still interested in families and, you know, 52 year old white guys and in, inside of corporations, because um, it wasn't about alienating any of them. It was making the center of our brand position 
around this multicultural millennial that was this sort of emerging economic force in the marketplace. Um, that then gave us sort of the um, the sort of impetus to build the brand structure around how you're going to appeal to that particular group. And of course, that led into what we did with uniforms and swipe right night and, you know, our the first partnership with Tinder and sports and which... By the way, just to tell you a funny story on that one, as as we were, you know, sort of putting that forward, which we did not tell the NBA we were doing that uh, because we knew they would just say no. And uh, so I was explaining, hey, I've reached out to the CMO of Tinder. I actually had to call him three times. He hung up on me twice because I think he thought I was crank calling him and didn't know how I got his phone number. The third time I finally got him to actually listen to me for five minutes. And, and he was just awesome after that. He was like, no one's ever called us to do this. And I said, well, look, we're trying to build relevance with this audience and this is how they meet people. And so, you know, I want to do this night to make a statement to them that we understand the tools they're using in their day to day life. And Tinder is one of those tools. So this is, you know, a few years ago. And I said um, to another senior executive at the team, hey, I'm going to do this thing with Tinder. And he's like, Peter, we can't have people having gay sex in the bathrooms at our arena. And I was like, no, no, no. I think you're thinking of another app. So I'm not bad. sure which one that is, but it's not Tinder. And um, and that just kind of gave, you know, sort of painted the picture of like how far we needed to come organizationally, right? To really sort of understand like not just this audience, but what new tools were emerging in the marketplace that we were just frankly out of touch with. Um, so we took this very irreverent position, right? And, and part of that was because, you know, we needed to stand out and to stand out, it meant we couldn't be part of the rest of the NBA herd. And uh, we also, you know, as we were doing this, we were about to embark on a $200 million renovation of our facility. Meanwhile, the Falcons across the street were spending $1.6 billion on a brand new building. So, you know, our $200 million was like less than the change orders that they were spending on their roof. Um, so, you know, finding this right audience and how we were getting, going to allocate capital, you know, against our physical infrastructure and bring these things together strategically became paramount beyond stuff that people sort of saw like, oh, your uniforms and your new colors. And uh, th those were all really important tactical executions of the strategy. Um, but really, the, the core was getting to this piece of it. And that's when the rest of the organization really started to rally around this because it was a more systemic solution instead of, oh, we just need a new campaign. You need to make the newest version of the Kiss Cam and um, let's change our colors and, and have a new retail capsule collection. Uh, this is this is terrible because I, I love hearing you go unfiltered, but I also have like 100 questions that I want to ask and uh, like five of them are going to get discarded at least. Um, you met real, real quick. Don't don't expand on this. I don't want the full story, but just confirm or deny this. You invented the concept of the kiss cam. Correct. Excellent. That was at, back at Calgary. I just needed to confirm or deny that. And I think you talk about it with Sean Callanan on the episode you did with him. But yeah, I just needed to confirm that. Yeah, I, I did. We we, we kind of got into that. That that to the best of my knowledge, that absolutely unequivocally started in Calgary, Alberta, Canada. Um, as did right. some other fun stuff like the teddy bear toss and a bunch of other stuff like that. If you want the full story on that, we'll link to the that podcast episode. We're not going to talk about that here because we got 
we got not enough time to talk about fandom. So what I just took away from your whole the the whole story that you just talked about with the Hawks is that you guys didn't focus on tactics first, which is where a lot of teams go first. They say, hey, let's start with let's do a new tactic and that'll attract us to the new audience. But what you guys did was something completely different. And it's what we both of our organizations now try to do with organizations, whether it be airports or sports and entertainment properties. And that is really starting with a deeper understanding of what are the goals, motivations, emotions, stereotypes of your target audience? And how well do you know what's going on between the ears of your fan? If you understand that, then you can start to build out all the strategies. And it really seems like that's what you guys did there. As you said, in Atlanta, as you said, who is it that we want to attract? Let's deeply understand that person first and foremost and then we can figure out how to get that person in the room. And I think a lot of people skip that step. That's what you see as well with organizations. Is that right? Yeah, no, it really is. Um, and by the way, getting to tactics is easy. That That's like, you know, that's the quickest. It's almost like instinct for us to just want to go to tactics. Um, and and uh, strategy is hard because it's slow and you've got to be really deliberate and it requires critical thinking and kind of our world today doesn't make a lot of time for critical thinking, right? Um, because we're just in this very, very fast paced, I need results immediately um, kind of kind of space. So, you know, you're right. We take a very um, cultural anthropological view of understanding people and organizations and markets. And that is to say what we really want to understand is what are the needs that are getting met when somebody basically, you know, self-selects a brand that they're going to invest as much time in as people do in sports? Um, and so that's, you know, kind of back to the therapeutic side of how I kind of started my career was really kind of understanding people and what triggers them and moves them and how do you modify behavior? And, and that I don't mean that in a manipulative way. I mean it more like when you can understand what someone's real needs are and you can honor that then you can actually orientate a brand and a position around that and strategy to that because you know this from your time at Disney, David. Like Disney does this, I don't know, they may be the original actually. Like oh, you yeah. feel totally good spending at Disney, even though you know that that soda's way too much and that, you know, that costume is like 70 times probably what it was actually cost to make. You gladly buy it because I look down at my daughter and she's watched Belle for like five years and she just met her in person. And now she could buy Belle's dress for $70, right? And I'm like, yes, let's do it. Um, but that's because it's not about money at that point. It's not about a transaction. We're in this incredibly emotive needs-based space. And Disney is meeting my needs as a parent in that moment. And it is absolutely meeting the needs of my daughter. And so money is actually, I'm just not price sensitive at that time. The problem with this is when you go back into sports, what we find with a lot of our sports clients, and I lived this on the other side, so I don't, I don't blame them for this, is we have made sports transactional and we've made it about price point, which of course is a factor, but it's not why anyone's coming to a game. No one comes to a game because tickets are on sale for $15 in the upper deck. 
right? Like you don't just one day say, well, I'm not even a baseball fan, but holy cow, baseball tickets are only $15. So I'm going to go. That It just doesn't happen like that. But that's actually how we operate the business and how we allocate funds, right? Like when you look at operating budgets and, and how media is bought and where, um, you know, CMOs place dollars around content and things like that, it's all predicated, I think, on the wrong imperatives. A hundred percent. And I think, you know, something that you talked about is really understanding the needs and not trying, you're not, you're not doing it in a manipulative way. You're just trying to better understand the person so that you can serve them better. And, and you mentioned Disney and my favorite example that one of many examples, one of the ones I probably repeat the most is like when you walk down main street, USA magic kingdom, right? You look on the left-hand side of, uh, of, of your, of the street. Right. And so when you're leaving the park, it's on your right-hand side, which as Americans, we tend to be on the, that right-hand side of the road. Uh, it's the toy store where we sell tangible souvenirs. And that window, those the window of that shop is about a good 12 to 24 inches lower than all the other windows so that the little kids can see in it, point out those toys, and get their parents to purchase them. And again, it's not that we're being manipulative. It's we're trying to understand, hey, look, the little kids are the ones making the purchase decisions. They're the one that wants the toys. So let's adapt the business to that person as opposed to being manipulative. And, and I mean, so on that note too, right, I think I'll, – I'll go ahead. Go ahead. I know you're going to respond to that. No, I, I just – I want to infuse a word that I know is going to sound strange, but I think it's the right word and, it, and it's an awkward word in sports and even sort of in business. But what you just described is kind right? It's kind to the consumer. Like it's actually thoughtful. That's not manipulative. So it's thoughtful to a child who doesn't have to get like hoisted up to look in the window because it's actually orientated about meeting and understanding what their needs are. And I'm telling you, like, if you address the needs of my child as a parent, I'm good, right? I'm a hundred percent good. And so a hundred and, and not only spend the money, um, but but that emotive connectedness becomes foundational to loyalty. So then when you start asking people like, why do you go back to Disney all the time? You've already seen it. Like you've been on that ride. You're going again. Like I've got a neighbor in Atlanta. They're members. I'm like members. You can be a member of Disneyland. They're like, oh, yeah. I'm like, well, how many times do you guys go? They go eight times a year in a non-pandemic <laughs> environment. I'm like eight times a year. That's like almost every month. They're like, mm hmm. Which, again, rationally makes no sense, but irrationally makes perfect sense. And that's because Disney gets the irrationality in that kind of decision making, which is steeped in sort of this emotive side of people's thinking. And sports keeps trying to appeal to the rational side when they're selling, when it's actually the irrational side, which is where all the power exists, that's buying. So you've got this like fundamental disconnect between what a consumer is actually coming to buy and how the seller is presenting their wares. And the only reason that they stay in business is because the consumer wants it badly enough that they literally supersede this awkward disconnect because they want to go anyways. Let, 
Let's expand on this. Uh, I think, Peter, this is a great intro into SEER and some of the work that you guys are doing. Um, this is a, a framework that you and I both talk about a lot. Uh, we talk about it from a, a customer service perspective and how to build that brand loyalty when we're doing trainings and whatnot. Let's talk about the relationship between the rider and the elephant and, and what that looks like and how that plays into creating brand loyalty. Yeah, so... Um you know, the, the rider elephant is, is just sort of this very simple analogy to understand um, all the work that's been done in moral foundation theory. And so, you know, in a nutshell, the, the metaphor is, you know, you have two parts of your brain. You have the irrational subconscious brain, which is where all emotion is formed and where your instincts live. And these instincts are actually your ancient survival instincts. So they're working all the time and they're making assessments of environments in nanoseconds. And that essentially these instincts, almost like an equalizer on an old stereo, they form your worldview, okay? And really like 99.5% of the decisions we make are actually formed in that side of our brain in that sort of structure. And then they get bounced to our prefrontal cortex, which is our new younger brain. And in that part of our brain, we actually have the capacity for rationality and language. Your subconscious has no capacity for, for language. So that's why when you meet somebody and you feel really connected to them right away and you don't really have the words to express it. We use these like goofy colloquialisms that come off as awkward. Like, you know, David, you and I are like brothers from another mother, right? I don't know what the hell that means other than to say, you and I seem to like really see the world the same way. And we probably shouldn't because like we didn't grow up together, right? But we obviously have this symmetry that creates this trust between us. So that's what's happening on the subconscious, the elephant. And the elephant's really making all the decisions. But once it makes a decision, it bounces, it bounces it to the rider. And this rider essentially has this um, false sense that it's actually navigating where the elephant is going. When really all the rider is doing is providing a narrative to the outside world to try to explain why we have decided what we have decided. Especially when what we have decided is countercultural or doesn't seem rational, and we're worried that people are going to judge us for making that decision. All right. And this is happening all day long, all of the time. But, you know, again, what I'm to take us back to how we're talking about sports teams, they're very orientated to trying to sell to the rider in this very rational way around things like price and other factors like that. When it's really the elephant who's making all of the decisions and who actually wants to be visible and seen and recognized, right? That's why people do weird stuff at sporting events, like take their hat off and turn it inside out and cock it to the side and then chant with 40,000 other people because they really think doing all of that is going to change the future, right? Totally and completely irrational, but wicked fun when you're in the middle of it because you get to really sort of let your elephant run wild, right? It's also why it makes no sense for a guy to go buy for $250 a shirt that he's going to wear seven times in the rest of his life probably with another man's name on the back. Um, but in that moment, it makes perfect sense 
because his elephant is running wild um, and he's really thoroughly enjoying letting his subconscious, which is his real self, out into, you know, um, the modern day world and, and to sort of be fed and nurtured. Peter, what what can senior execs at sports and entertainment organizations do to maybe it's a, a heuristic, a mental model, phrases to help them get out of thinking about appealing to the rider and to constantly keep the elephant at the top of their minds as they're making dis- strategic decisions? What, what what are what are some frameworks or mental models that you have that you work with with your clients to instill in them that some senior leaders might be able to apply in their organizations? Well, um, this whole notion of fandom, right, which is a little bit of an overused word, like fan gets thrown around a lot, fan experience, fan engagement, Mm -hmm. fan, fan, fan. Um, But fandom really is sort of the framework to look at this audience differently, right? Because fandom tells us really that there are three key needs that are getting met when somebody comes to consume their product. First of all, their personal sense of identity is being reaffirmed. That's really important, right? The second thing is this sense of group affiliation is occurring live at a game. And that's really important because the groups that we affiliate with reinforce our identity and they make us feel safe, right? Because when I'm at a Braves game and everyone's going, oh, right, we've got sort of the auditory and we've got the physical synchronicity, all of this, and I'm looking around there's actually a transcendent feeling that's occurring in that audience. And, you know, what I tell senior executives is what is wildly exciting to me for sports is typically people got that transcendent feeling at church. Okay. And we know that organized religion in America is in precipitous decline. And I'm not here to say if that's good, bad, indifferent, right? There's lots of positions on that, but the fact is it's happening. But people need to find those things somewhere. And they're frankly turning to sports to find community, to find self-identity. And the last one that's really important is to find self-care. So self-care is a weird one because people only like to connect it to the idea of wellness and things like that, which of course it is. But when someone goes to a game and they're like, you know what, I've been good all week. I'm having another beer that can actually be construed as self-care, right? Now, I'm not saying it's healthy or it's good or bad or whatever, but the fact is that person feels like they're being nurtured in that environment and they leave feeling satisfied because they basically got a break from reality. And, you know, when you start to understand how those needs are getting met, it's an extremely powerful position for teams to be in because that ticket's not just a seat anymore, It's something very different that they're buying. And so then architecturally, you can start thinking differently, right, about how you're organizing your infrastructure. And we spend a lot of time working with them on how do you explain this back to your sponsor brand partners, right? Mm. And, And what's really frustrating to me for teams in the sponsorship realm is they continue to allow themselves to get commoditized by media metrics that work outside of sports and that brands are really smart about forcing on sports teams who haven't allowed themselves to go make a different model. And so they're betrothed to a model that frankly is not healthy for them, right? Because if I'm a brand and I actually get to work with them on the other side of the table and they're like, hey, 
like just be careful you don't like get too many teams figuring this out because it's going to totally change the economics of sponsorship right because they'll go in and say well look you know such and such team i can buy 25 to 34 year old males for 15 cents on the dollar that you're trying to charge me by cpa and because teams can't articulate why they hold this deep relevance with their audience they have to accept that financial model around sponsorship instead of being able to go back to the brand and say you know you're not going to be able to buy the relationship that i have with this audience anywhere else outside of sports so don't apply a media model to try to understand how to quantify my value of my relationship um, and so I think, again, that's, you know, a few different sort of frameworks to maybe um, to consider that immediately totally change how you think about yield management around seats and tickets and completely change the whole ecosystem of how you think about sponsorship, how you price your assets, and then frankly, how you bundle your assets as well. Peter, you're, you're you're killing me. I think we're gonna have to make you a regular on this show because there, there's just so many so many ways I would want to. There's so many things I would want to unpack there, but we haven't even gotten into some of the cool projects that you're working on now that are somewhat outside of sports, but that have a lot of tangential uh, relevancy to sports and entertainment properties. So, but let's transition and, and get into that. So, you've got uh, your company now, Seer. Um, talk to us a little bit about some of the work that you guys are doing outside of sports, ultimately still around fandom though. And, and maybe we'll get into kind of how those things tie uh, together. Well, um, I think what was unexpected, David, when we got really deep into trying to crack the code of fandom, right? The whole social psychostructure of fandom. Mm-hmm. Um, what we realized was foundationally that same structure applies in music, film, fashion, food, travel, technology. And and we had only really been sort of looking at it through the lens of sports and wanting to understand it in that industry and um, started to realize that this was more about human nature and how people adopt. Um, And you can, you know, you can insert, convert or buy with adopt, but I think adopt is a a better term because it's broader, right? Because people buy ideas um, as much as they buy products. And so um, we had the great fortune of being able to get into the aviation space because it's been decimated by COVID. And um, we had one airport initially who came to us and said, can you help us strategically rethink our business model? Uh, Because in aviation, their four primary revenue streams are passenger traffic, parking, typically number two, number three is food, beverage and adjacent retail, and then number four is cargo. And their top three revenue streams were almost completely wiped out by COVID. And when we started to look at this, we started to realize a lot of these same dynamics, insights, and understandings that we're seeing in fandom around sports apply to how people make decisions around travel. And so we started to kind of take a big step back and apply this thinking to to the aviation model. Uh, We also started getting into a lot of work around uh, clean water, clean energy, um, uh, waste to fuel, um, partly because we got brought in by the U.S. Green Building Association 
to help them think about their messaging um, and, and how sort of, you know, lead certified professionals were going out into the built environment to talk about sustainability. Because it's a really loaded word as well, right? Where instinctively, um, people organized one way understands sustainability as this thing. People who are instinctively organized another way see sustainability as something totally different. And so that led us into this innovation world and being able to plot strategically all of this insight that we have and sort of this new way to segment people, which, by the way, um, when you're segmenting people by their instinctual orientation or their elephant, like how their elephants made up, um, age, ethnicity, gender have very limited impact on that organization. So what it means, if I was to use for you sort of a, a classic marketing term, right? Like um, Katie, your producer and your associate who's with us today, um, obviously Katie is a woman. Well, Peter and Katie can't be in the same segment simply because Peter is a man and Katie is a woman, right? So that also makes the assumption that Katie and Peter don't see the world the same way and don't make decisions the same way. And we know that unequivocally that is not true. So to amplify this even further, um, if I was to say Katie is an African-American woman and then say, well, Peter and Katie can't see the world the same way because Peter's white and Katie is African-American. We also know that that is wildly inaccurate and untrue. But those are the segmentation models. And I'm being very broad here, right? I'm not suggesting sure, that brands sure. don't use other segmentation cuts beyond that. But those are the big three, age, gender, and ethnicity. And so when you, when you continue to orientate strategy, business strategy, around a really broken old model of how you want to catalog and organize people, it's wildly inefficient in terms of how you spend against trying to grow your business. And so we brought that into aviation um, and then plotted all of that against how people are prone to adopt and when and where they adopt based on how they're organized instinctually. Peter, give us some examples of personas in the aviation space, specific personas that you spelled out, because I think it'll help people our listeners understand how they might break out their segments differently uh, in their world. I know this is an exercise that we do with our clients as we go into journey maps because a customer's journey or a fan's journey on game day looks different based on the goals that they're trying to achieve as opposed, and, and to your point, I mean, race, ethnicity, age, gender, that stuff gets thrown out the window. It is about the emotion, but talk to us about some of these personas um, or, or, or emotional segmentation that you've created in the aviation space? Because I think it'll help these leaders, our, our listeners, apply it to their organization. Well, let, let, me, let me start broadly with it, right? Like what we know is um, there are um, some individuals, not right, wrong, good or bad, who um, on an adoption curve look like pure innovators, right? So they are at the front of the curve they are always asking why they're breaking things, they're remaking things. They, you know, they're sort of the driver of what is new. What we know about them instinctively is they don't scale well. And they don't scale well because they don't instinctively see the world in groups. They see the world in individual parts, people, places, and things. 
Okay, so politically in America, those people skew liberal because they see individual people, right? So they have a hard time leaving anybody behind because they believe their best chance for survival is in a bunch of other individuals. Whereas the other group that lives on the other end of the spectrum, who from an adoption perspective typically looks like late majority or a laggard, remember this is not good, bad, some are smarter or dumber, it's got nothing to do with that. It's just how they're organized instinctively. They score really high on their instinctual comfort in hierarchical systems and order, okay? So that's why they live at the end of the adoption curve because they don't really like change because change to them is perceived as a threat to the order. And their whole sort of scope of survival is being in a really strong group, which is why they're okay with some individuals getting left behind. Because it's like, well, sorry, Katie, you're not making the group any stronger anymore. We kind of got to let you go, right? And you, you know, you can sort of superimpose how that is, you know, happening in American political sort of culture today, and so on and so forth. Remember, I'm a Canadian, so I get, I don't get to vote. <laughs> I'm here on a green card. Uh, so one way or the other, it's not a right or wrong thing. It's just when you understand that we're not going to change that person's instinctual view. And so when that person who lives late on the curve and is organized around, you know, this idea of order, they're scared by like really heavy innovators because they see them as a threat to the order. And they either want to push them out in the organization or kind of keep them in orbit, or frankly, they just turn into white blood cells and they try to kill them off. Right. And this is happening in a very subconscious way. So, you know, when you're when you're starting to look at audiences and you're starting to, you know, understand how this may fit and apply to change management at an enterprise level inside, let's say, an airport. Um, airports have organized themselves around being extremely tactical environments. And they've had to because we have like giant machines that have a lot of jet fuel in them landing and taking off. And then we've got smaller machines moving around them. And we've got, you know, literally millions of people moving through this infrastructure. It is a hugely tactical environment. And so unfortunately, what's happened is um, over time, because they're so tactically focused and because managing tactics typically has meant not being innovative, but more about being efficient, they have orientated themselves around people who live at the end of the adoption curve, right? Because in a mature organization, you want a CEO who can scale the organization around efficiency. And that's why a lot of startup founders who are awesome innovators, as soon as their idea starts to mature and their business starts to grow, their VCPE group comes in and says, it's time for you to go. We've got to install a new CEO who's not a progressive, we need somebody who's more of a traditionalist who's going to mature this business around efficiency. So, um, you know, to change aviation, you've got to find a way to empower those progressives and those innovators on the front end, but also make it make sense to the rest of the organization by presenting that back in a linear way so that they, with a dialect that they understand, can buy into it and not be threatened by it. 
So, you know, that's how we've gotten into stuff like vertiports and EV tolls and, you know, microgrids what, what and electrification are, and, you know. The, what, is it, what, what does that even mean? I don't even know what any of those words are. I have like 10 questions. <laughs> well, so think, about, so think about a typical airport today is based around carbon-based fuel fixed-wing aircraft. Okay. So okay. basically just big jets. They fly in with lots of people on them. People get off, people get on, and the jet takes off again. If you look at what cars did to America at the turn of the century, and, and Detroit being central to this, it changed America when cars became available at scale because they offered people mobility in ways that they had never, ever had it before. Just like trains did that before cars. And then airplanes did it in a way that trains and boats couldn't. And, you know, what we're working through right now is we're about to go through the next big metamorphosis in transportation. And that means that um, you're going to see EV tolls, which are electric vertical um, takeoff lift vehicles, meaning they can just, you know, um, they're like a jump jet, basically, except they're electric. And what you're going to see is airports turning into fixed wing aircraft hubs where big planes come in. Right. And then people get off a big fixed wing aircraft and they get into an EV toll at what we call vertiports, which is think of an airport that's standing up instead of splayed out. And you get on an EV toll and it basically flies you from that airport to another vertiport in downtown or in another town or city. Um, mm -hmm. And you're not going to have to use big fixed wing aircraft regionally. The cargo implications to that are uh, heavy lift drones, which will take cargo that, let's say, comes in on an international flight, fixed wing aircraft, and then just picks that cargo up and autonomously delivers it to another distribution center. Th these are innovations that like, these are mind blowing to people who've been running air, uh, airports for like 25 years, but they also know that this is a reality that's coming. And we're saying to sports teams, hey, you're building a new stadium right now. Where are you at with electrification? And what are your plans for EV tolls in the future? And you can imagine how I get looked at when I bring that question up. But what some executives in sports are not realizing is that these exponential technologies are coming way faster than they realize. And when you're about to go out and spend a billion dollars on a new stadium and you're not thinking about these kind of things, you're going to basically waste a half a billion dollars or you're going to have to spend another half a billion dollars because transportation, as you understand it today, is going to be a totally different thing tomorrow. And we haven't even got into hyperloops, right? But by the way, that's coming too. Okay, I'm, I'm not going to ask the question, what is hyperloops? Because that is going to take us down another, another <laughs> rabbit hole that I'm endlessly Next curious time. about. But uh, I, I want to I ask this question here, because to your point around senior leaders, having to look 10 steps ahead, especially when you're thinking about a big capital or infrastructure spend, like a new stadium, like a new arena, where realistically with the money that you're investing on that, you're not going to get your return on investment for 20 years, right? So you've got to be looking 20 years ahead as to what are the technologies that are going to be there. You, you in my mind, are, are one of the smartest people I know, and I think you're constantly looking at what is 10, 20 years down the road. 
where are you learning? Are you learning? What What are the sources that you use that if you're if you were giving this out to another senior leader, I would, you would say subscribe to this newsletter, listen to this podcast, read this book. Are, are there things that are constant in your learning journey that you're constantly paying attention and gravitating towards? Or do you tend to be more of like a, a subject matter? I'm only going to pick that up because I've been tasked to tackle this specific thing. I got to think it's more of the former. Um, but I'm going to open-ended give that question to you. Yeah, no, it, it is more of the former. Um, uh, I will tell you, I, I think part of the reason you and I get along so well is we're just both kind of curious spirits. Um, and, and that's part of, I know how we're instinctively wired. Right. Um, and that's why to the executive teams that we work with, you know, they're, they're trying to run very tactical businesses, like getting time away from that to get up and think about this stuff. Cause I've lived that side of the business. You just don't get that opportunity. Even if you want to do that, it's incredibly difficult, right? Um, because you're, you are sort of held to the tyranny of the urgent all the time. And so, you know, for me, it really started with how do I surround myself with some people who that's the world they're living in. That's their every day is thinking like this, right? And there are some unique figures out there like that. We've tried to collect them. Um, A, if we can bring them into the organization, we do, but um, it's not even like they have to be in our organization. We just want them like in orbit or we want to be in orbit of them and, and understanding how they sort of see and are approaching all these kinds of things so that we can aggregate that thinking and then distill it down with practical application to those senior leaders at teams, at airports and, you know, in other spaces and play governments um, who just don't have the ability to, to be able to go out and do that work. Right. Um, as far as books go, um, I'm a big fan of um, Stephen Kotler. Um, so maybe at another time we can get into talking about flow and how flow fits into to fandom. Super, super interesting stuff, right? Rise of Superman, uh, Stephen Kotler, if you haven't read that one, for sure, put it on your list. But from the tech and innovation perspective, um, he wrote a book a few years ago called Bold, which is excellent. And then the follow up a couple of years ago was The Future is Faster Than You Think. And The Future is Faster as you, Than You Think is excellent because what it really explains is that in human civilization, we've had a very linear progression over the last thousand years, right? So things have kind of changed at a glacier's pace Mm -hmm. and humans are actually organized around that pace of change. But what's happened in the last 30 years is technology has accelerated the pace of change in a way that we have never seen before as humans. And it's gone from linear to exponential, which just means that you're seeing like two, three, four different technologies come together and make one new technology that exponentially changes everything in a way that like you have to reorientate your entire business around. Um, and, and what I'm saying is that is happening in transportation today, right now. Um, and it's also why we're under this duress and pressure that we all feel, why there's so much anxiety in the world, why we're so polarized, why trust is at an all-time low. And oh, by the way, why we're seeking things like sports in Disneyland as kind of like a calming bomb 
for all of this crazy that is out there that seems like the chaos of today's world. So I would definitely say read Stephen Kotler's work. Uh, Peter Diamandis um, co-authors um, The Future's Faster Than You Think with him. Um, if you're even remotely interested in sort of what I was talking about on the so, uh, social psycho side and flow and some of that, and you want to kind of get into that, there's another book called Stealing Fire, which is really, really good and is sort of like a history of how ancient man started with, you know, meditation and drumming and dancing and all these things to sort of, you know, get their brain, which we would now understand is into theta and beta and out of alpha, um, i.e. turn off the rider and only listen to the elephant, right? That's what all that's code for. Um, that man's been trying to do that for thousands of years. Um, and now we understand it from a neuroscience, neuropsychology um, perspective, and we're creating shortcuts to sort of like unleash a new capacity of human performance that we've never seen. So while there's tons of chaos and it's crazy out there, the big hope that I would like to leave everybody with is we're also understanding how to unlock new capacities in our brains so that we can actually go out and catch up as just people to um, how fast technology is moving things, which is why, to me, sports will always be a thing, right? It's so linked at such a deep level to who we are as humans. I'm just dying for more sports teams to really understand the power of that and then reorganize their business around that strength. Peter, that, that, I think we have to end on that. That's just such a good closing. I don't know that we can close it better than that, even though I have a million other questions to ask you. Um, I, I think we're going to save all those for a part two or, or maybe hopefully a part three. We'll see how it goes. But um, uh, Peter, where can people reach you if they want to follow along your journey, uh, if they want to get in touch with you? Where's the best spot for people to, to reach out to you? Yeah, the, the best spot, um, you know, especially we've got some information, just some reading and things like this on our website. It's just seer, S-E-E-R dot world, uh, no dot com. Um, and honestly, if somebody was compelled by this and just wants to reach out to, uh, to me directly, literally, they can send me an email, just peter at seer dot world. Um, I'm happy to have conversations about this. It's a lot. It's not for everybody. Right. Uh, it's sort of a lot of heavy material. But I think the people who are inclined to it, once they really start to understand this, um, really get into it because the effect it can have on their business is transformative. Um, so, and it's just really, really interesting stuff. Like what you'll take in your business, you can't not use in your personal life and how you better manage your own relationships and, and things like that as well. Because it's really, this is just about people. That's really what it's all about. Peter, great, great stuff. I, I really appreciate you coming on and, and dropping all this wisdom with us. Um, for all of our listeners on there, if you want Peter back for a part two, message me on Twitter at David dot, or is it at David dot Malay? I don't know. I think it's just at David Malay on Twitter. Uh, we'll, we'll link to my Twitter handle down in the show notes. Peter, are you on Twitter at all? I, I am. Yep. At Peter Sorkoff. At Peter Sorkoff. Perfect. We'll link to that. Message either of us and be like, hey, we need more, Peter. Come back on the show. Uh, we would love to hear from you guys uh, as our listeners to see if you want more of this type of content. But Peter, man, thank you so much for coming on. I always learn so much whenever I'm with you. And uh, I'm looking forward to our next conversation. Uh, well, thanks for having me. Um, and 
it's fun to talk about this and, and it's fun to talk about it. I know how much you get this. Um, and I think, uh, again, you know, if you haven't, it would be awesome for you to talk about sort of the biz, the Disney side of this, uh, because they so get it in so many amazing ways too. Uh, and I think teams can learn so much from that as well. So just great to be here. Yeah. I mean, we, we, we plug it a decent amount, but I, we got to just come on and just have a jam session and go back and forth, talk about trends we're both looking at. I mean, we're still in the, we still haven't even unpacked all the philosophy aspects, let alone what are the actual trends or actual experiments that you're running. And I'm excited to get into that in the future. So Peter, once again, thanks so much, man. We'll, we'll talk soon. Indeed. Today's episode is brought to you by Checked In, a new tool in your operations toolkit that helps you understand exactly who's working in your venue. It's one of the tech products the engagement team helped create during the pandemic, and with it, we set out to solve some of the key problems sports and entertainment operators face every day. The tool does a few things, from helping you gain more labor data to operate more efficiently and mitigate risk, and it also saves you time and headaches by automating the horrible check-in and credential approval process that has existed for so long. But my favorite part of Checked In, hands down, is that it's tied to a digital learning platform. Now, historically, training game day staff has taken place before the beginning of a season. But how do you train the workers that start mid-season or the workers that just come in to work the big games, the big events? Well, this tool solves that issue. With Checked In, you can create and push training to your teammates digitally and you can require employees to watch training videos before they're able to physically check in to work. Checked In has begun rolling out at some of the biggest stadiums in the country. If you want to see how it works and get a demo, head to checkedin.app. That's C-H-E-C-K-D-I-N.app. We'll make it easy and link to it in the show notes. Hey guys, before you head out, just wanted to say thank you so much for listening to the show. If you enjoyed it, head over to iTunes to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. That helps more of your peers find the show as they search for ways to get better in their own roles. But this podcast is just a small part of what we do at Engagement. In our normal day in the office, we're crazy focused on helping athletic departments and sports and entertainment companies generate more revenue by becoming more customer-centric. To see how we might be able to help your organization, visit engagementpartners.com to learn more. Download a free guide, check out our blogs and case studies, or schedule a call with us if you want to see how we can help with your particular objectives. Our goal is to help you create deeper connections with fans and generate more revenue. So when you're with us, hopefully you find a nugget or two that helps your cause.